Welcome to the Agile Data Podcast, where we talk about the merging of Agile and data ways of working in a simply magical way. Welcome to the Agile Data Podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. Hi, and I'm Raphael Branger. Welcome, welcome. It's been uh, I've been following you on LinkedIn for a long, long time. It's uh, typically hard for me to find people that are working in the world of agile and data BI. So, uh, so it's good to finally have you on the podcast. Um, the, the reason I asked you to come along is is you're writing a book called Agile BI. So, uh, I thought it would be great to have a chat about you know what's going to be in the book, uh, how you see Agile and data blending together. But uh, before we rip into that, why don't you give us a little bit of a background about yourself, just so the listeners know uh, how you got into this world of Agile and data. Yeah, so thanks. It's a great pleasure to be here, and um, thanks for inviting me. So um, I'm in BI and data since nearly 20 years. So when I was 19, I started my career at IT Logix, the same company I'm still working for. And back then, um, I started really with just creating reports with a tool now, a dinosaur called Crystal Reports. Maybe you know that. And um, basically from there, it took me everywhere to system engineering and then into bigger data warehousing projects as a developer. And uh, suddenly, let's say I recognized that requirements engineering is a crucial topic in business intelligence projects, of course. And that, um, especially coming from a waterfall world in my, let's say, the first few years of uh, practicing business intelligence, I noticed that there are several disadvantages in gathering requirements just uh, upfront or before the projects, because typically, <laughs> you know, as little as uh, be, uh, at the beginning of a, of, a, of a project. And this was basically what me brought to Agile, um, thinking about, okay, how can we adapt um, agile methods uh, from a software engineering world into the business intelligence world. And um, then we started to practice that first internally at the company IT Logix where I work. And um, after a few internal learning cycles, uh, we went then out to first customer projects. And so basically now it's about eight to 10 years um, as we, let's say, working in this agile space. And this was basically the reason uh, for us to decide that we want to write the book and consolidate all our findings until today. Um, but it's just, a, let's say, a point, um, uh, an immediate point, what we know today, and we are still on a journey going on. Yeah, well, that's that's the agile mindset, right? Kind of inspect and then experiment and then adapt. Um, so yeah, if, if we ever get to a stage where we think we're done, we're done, done. <laughs> Absolutely, then, uh, <laughs> I got a funny feeling we're not we're not gonna following the uh, the playbook. Um, so that's really interesting because it's it's almost uh, the same as my my journey. Mm -hmm. um, slightly different in, in some ways. Uh, I started off with forest and trees uh, 30 years ago, mm -hmm. <laughs> rather mm -hmm. than Christmas. Mm -hmm. um, but that whole idea of uh, the, the time we take to get these requirements up front and, and the old way of working, mm -hmm. and you know, they were guesses at best. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it was really, a, uh, we, we spent too much time up front, um, mm -hmm. and then we had uh, bugger all time to be able to change it at the end, um, let alone test it. And like you, I mean, the problem I was trying to solve was I was frustrated in the kind of the data modeling, the the ETL back then um, phase of the development. Mm -hmm. That's the one I found was if you had a person who was an expert, it, it was just beautiful. It just worked, right? They knew what they were doing. They'd done it for years. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we were always, well, we're pretty much always successful. But if you had anybody who hadn't done it before or they're relatively new, it was a nightmare. Um, but I struggled to find any patterns in that space at the time, so ended up focusing on requirements as well as being uh, the first thing to work in um, mm -hmm. in Agile. And same thing, worked internally in my company, got some ideas and practice, and then uh, lucky enough to be able to experiment with a customer and yep. just took on from there. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of a similar journey. 
So talking about requirements and, and requirements engineering, um, you, you were scaring me there. I thought we we're going to go. Uh, there's the whole hyper specialization happening in the market at the moment with, <laughs> you know, data engineer, analytics engineer, MO ops engineer. Uh, let's hope we don't get a requirements engineer. But if we think about requirements as engineering, yeah, how, how does that work when you're working with a customer? So the term engineering was chosen uh, very specifically because we wanted to express uh, it's not just um, something, um, let's say, it's something which you can really learn. It's something which follows certain rules. Um, and this is what, what, what brought us to, to uh, frame a, a kind of or, or define a framework where we said, okay, we don't want to think about what are typical requirements again and again and learning it by heart. So <clears throat> we started with having, let's say, four major areas. For example, so we start with asking people about requirements coming, let's say, from the, we call it the environment. So what is the overall purpose of a project, for example? What are the business goals and processes to be supported? So really, what you typically would write into a, a project charter, for example, um, as well some um limitations you might have, like uh, legal um, aspects where we... I wouldn't say it's a, it's a requirement because it's nothing which someone inside of the project can choose to to follow. It's it's just something which is imposed onto you before. And so that's the first thing. Then the second thing we uh, tackle is um, the question about, okay, what are requirements towards the organization and processes of your uh, upcoming BI or analytics system? Um, so this is the idea to already think about, okay, who will operate the system, for example, or to what degree um, does a customer wants to be involved in the development process, for example, because this is actual, or actually uh, as well a requirement to say, okay, we want to be involved in the, in the process of developing the system and as well having, let's say, the requirement to learn together with an external service provider, as we are at IT Logics, so this is these are the two first categories, and then we um, have the two others, which is about data requirements, and the other one is BI application requirements. So the, basically, what what you see or what you get um, as reports, etc. And we we do actually vary depending, of course, on the overall scope of a project to then define or decide whether we need to tackle data requirements in, in, in what level of detail, for example, because it's a difference, of course, whether you are just building a few new reports on top of an existing, for example, data warehouse, or whether you are building the data warehouse and then maybe you do not even yet know what reports uh, or what concrete reports you want to build after all. So that's basically the, the four main categories we have um, in, in terms of requirements. But we don't... Let's say we don't gather them up front all, uh, uh, let's say, at, at the beginning of the project. It's just a, a structure which we can reuse all the time. So, of course, at the beginning of a project, probably the first two categories with the environment, processes, and organization are more center stage. And the more we are getting into the development, the more detailed questions coming up in terms of what are the data requirements and the BA application requirements. And of course, there are many subcategories uh, as well to guide us in the project to ask the right questions and also give some inspiration to uh, organization. Oh, what actually could we want? So do you find that you tend to start with a customer when they're at the beginning of their journey, you know, a, a greenfields type environment where you're working to do the data and the visualization? Or do you find at the moment you tend to be coming in when the data is in place to a degree and then you're focusing more on the, you know, the last mile, the visualization, mm -hmm. the dashboards, the BI stuff? No, currently we are facing um, a lot of, we would call it data warehouse modernization kind of situations because we are now in the let's say in the age where uh, let's say the typical first um, first iteration or cycle systems which now maybe are between eight to ten years old um, are coming to an end of life and uh, either uh, because of hardware and software um, deadlines where they would have to renew hardware and software licenses and that basically leads to a cloud adoption um, because a lot of uh, our customers are now moving 
um, the BI stack into the cloud. And on the other hand, um, we see, especially in the small and medium sized businesses, um, actually just entering um, a more enterprise-like uh, business intelligence uh, way of working, I would say. They started out maybe with some individual um, reporting and Excel spread marking and, and so on. And now seeing that their business is growing and that they come, let's say, to a kind of an upper limit of what, what is feasible for them in a manual or more um, ad hoc way of working. And therefore, even though there are new buzzwords uh, all uh, all the time, like data mesh, I, I just uh, consider it uh, the last few weeks or where we had a few discussions, but basically at least for, let's say, the the average organization, it's still the, the, the classical data warehouse, bringing together data from various sources and have pretty, let's say, standardized reports on top of it to have a good start. Yeah, I think um, yeah, one of the things we do in, in the IT domain, which we should be embarrassed about, is uh, you know, new, new lamps for old. We, we take a, a technique or a pattern that's been around for years and then we bring out a slightly new variation of technology and, and vendor wash it to make it the new call. Or even worse, we find a, uh, a set of technology that has a, a really good fit in a specific use case and then try and broadly apply it. And, you know, and the one that that gets my goat the most on that is uh, uh, real time, you know, real time streaming of data um, and into dashboards. Yeah, it, it's required for some specific use cases, but to try and apply that pattern across every, you know, information product or data product is ridiculous. And and just one thought about the technology. I mean, uh, even though it is, it's constantly evolving and it helps to certainly um, solve some 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 problems more elegantly or more quickly. In the end, when we have struggles in our projects, it's typically not about the technology. It's, it's really about understanding your business domain, the business processes, let's say, how these processes are depicted in your source systems and uh, having there a lot of gaps between what people think, how the data looks like in the systems or how the processes are uh, implemented in their systems to what it is in reality. So this is where the agile thought comes into play uh, once more, because you start with, a let's say, an assumption at the beginning, um, both from a, a content or a requirement perspective, as well from a solution architecture perspective. And you just need to get access to the data as soon as possible to validate this uh, hypothesis. And from there, it starts iterating because once you see the data the first time, you recognize all these differences in, in your assumptions or compare to your assumption. And then you can narrow it down step by step uh, to the concrete result or what you actually then will deliver. Yeah, um, I think you used the word uh, way of working or the term way of working earlier, which which you know, I love because you know, at the beginning for me, I was always focused on methodologies, right, on, on strict frameworks and structures, on a set of tasks that were repeatable and we could follow because, you know, I came from a waterfall background. That's how we were meant to have done it. It's how all the big consulting firms pretended they do it. Um, but after a while, I worked out that, you know, for me, there's a set of patterns that you apply and those patterns may be technical patterns around technology, but they're also patterns around ways of working. You know, how do the teams work? And that's dependent on how many people in the team, how many teams you've got. Um, also, that idea of a hypothesis I love, you know, the number of times we've been told how the data behaves or how the business process is executed. Um and in, in the old days, we'd believe it and we'd start designing everything around uh, what we were told, then find out they're just urban legends. Yeah, nobody updates that field. Oh, no, that field doesn't actually just hold a identity for a person. It happens to hold uh, organization as well because, you know, there was a change two years ago and they had no money, so they cheated. Um, so that I idea that, you know, you start off with everything's a hypothesis and you prove it as quickly as you can and then, then move on. I love that. That's uh, something. And the third one that I kind of picked up there was this idea around domain or domain knowledge. And um, like you, I'm a little bit sick of, uh, you know, new terms and vendor washing. And, and I agree data mesh will be the new big data. Um, 
but under the covers, Data Mesh has some good principles. Absolutely. So the idea of being domain focused, you know, having some domain expertise in the team makes the team um, better, right? It's, it's easier, quicker, faster for them, more fun for them to, to do the delivery. What we see there is, a, is an interesting, I call it paradox, um, which we see in, uh, on large scale, like with a data mesh, and, but as well on a, on a, on a micro scale in, in just a regular, let's say, small scale or smaller scale um, element, namely that the more flexibility or agility you want to achieve, the more you have to in, or, uh, uh, have a kind of standardization and governance on it. And I think that's very interesting um, to understand that sometimes you need to first limit the options you have in order to achieve higher flexibility in the area you actually want to have it. And I think that's basically what I took away from the whole data mesh discussion. You still need some kind of governance to coordinate the different, let's say, elements in the data mesh in order to make it somehow compatible to each other. In my experience, you know, when I get, get invited in to help a team, um, you know, kind of start adopting an agile way of working with data, sometimes there's an expectation that the team are going to be more efficient, faster, deliver more on day one. And, you know, we we had the conversation really early about actually we're doing complete change and, and change uh, has implications. And the implications of when you adopt this new way of working is uh, you're slower at the beginning, right? You, you fail more often and you learn from it. Do you find that? Do you find that um, people expect Agile just to make the, the data process better on day one? Or do you find most people are open to the idea that actually they've got some learning to do, it'll take a while before the team get to a level of maturity that that uh, they're rocking it? What helps me here is to distinguish between, or I use the analogy uh, to, uh, for example, a car factory. So in the end, you want to get out thousands of cars per week, for example, and even with a high variability of things which you can choose from, etc. But until you get to that stage that you can, let's say, um, build so so many cars uh, each week, you need to invest quite a bit into your factory and build up the factory. And there is some initial effort. And I think that's something uh, what I learned or which um, is one lesson learned, let's say, from the past, uh, past 10 years. There is no, so let's say, red button to increase agility. And then you push it and then agility is here. So basically it's a quite challenging process which starts, for example, we always say, we start with professionalization. That means you need to have just people working in a professional way. So they need to know, for example, data modeling or certain skills, not only technical, but about requirement engineering. So it's about bringing together a good team which has a certain level um, in, in what they do. And um, that's, that's, the, that's the start. And of course, you can have uh, uh, an iterative uh, process like Scrum with sprints, etc. If you don't have the good people in it, in the team, then um, you're just failing faster, but never, never succeeding. And the other thing, what, what you see there, if you start working with professional people, um, then something follows, which I call professional laziness, because you don't want to reinvent the wheel all the time. So you are looking for standardization which is the next step in, on your way to, to agility. And if you start to standardize things from design standards, like from in, in your data model to the technical patterns, but as well for the requirements engineering process, this is why we use a framework, which is always the same. It's always the same categories in order to go through. We, we have checklists and uh, templates, etc. So you're just let's say, faster with standardizing things or when working with the standardized uh, elements in your project. And then a, a third step comes into play. When you have standardized elements in your project, you can start to automate them. And only automation brings you there that you can deliver or let's say that you can work in shorter iterations. And with short, I really mean one week, two week at the maximum, where you can build what do we call vertical increments or end-to-end -end increments. Only if you have these short iterations, you actually have a chance to deliver more frequently, like every four weeks, every six weeks, uh, and so on. And 
this is this journey where we say, okay, building up this professional way of working, establishing certain standards, implementing automation patterns, this is building the factory. And for, let's say, smaller companies or smaller projects and small scope, simpler data sources, etc. It's not that a big thing to build um, such a factory because, again, um, you can do it in the, the same way all the time uh, because uh, the tools are there nowadays, etc. And a lot of standards are there anyway as well. But of course, if you have a very large organization, building the factory can be uh, more challenging or more let's say, time-consuming. Think about if you want to have fully automated um, deployment pipelines, continuous integration, and so on. So you can invest quite a bit of things if you want uh, into your factory. But the more you invest into the factory, the more powerful um, are the outputs you can uh, create in an even much faster time. Yeah, so you know, again, we've we've taken uh, that concept of automation in the data world and, and called it data ops, right? So let's let's uh, exactly. take DevOps and give it a new word. Um, but that idea of factorization is one that intrigues me. So if I look at the way a data team typically works, uh, for me, a flow based model, a flow based pattern from Agile tends to fit better. Um, but what I find when I start working with a new team is if we if we start off with some some flow patterns, they look so close to the the pipelining and handoff process that they normally use. You know, they end up with a BA that does requirements who hands it over to a modeling yep, model. Exactly. Hands, yeah, and and so I find they don't iterate as much, right? That there's not as much change and therefore they become like you said they become professionally lazy and and not in a bad way but it's comfortable for them so what i find is if we move to a scrum pattern right if we break things up into iterations and uh that change in the way they work is is actually enough to trigger a a massive amount of iteration in, in terms of their focus on that way of working and then they tend to then find ways of automation and when they automate they become back into that flow of factory process is that what you see um to a certain degree yes um it's true that we typically start with an iteration based uh, process as well because it gives you more safety in the beginning it gives you certain because think about in a waterfall world having a plan and a thoroughly thought through concept in the beginning gives you safety as well. And you can be sure that you actually thought about everything and you can simply start developing. Of course, the issue is that the requirements might change while you are developing and that you misunderstood certain requirements, but except of this little detail, um, you you are in a quite safe world because you have really a, a good concept. Now, in an agile world where you do not have that much upfront design, um, it's much more scary, I would say, on, on an emotional level, but as well on, a, on an objective thing that um, you always uh, need to think, okay, can we change this now without or still being sustainable or producing a sustainable solution, because that's of course a, 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 a risk you you are facing. Um, that if you continuously evolve your data model, for example, that you end up in a mess, uh, not a consistent data model, etc. And here, I think having um, the iterations, especially with certain iteration rituals like an iteration planning and then a dedicated iteration review. So this gives not only the developers, but also stakeholders, which probably are new to Agile, um, a certain safety or feeling of safety um, so that they see what's going on. They have a fixed schedule, etc. So it's much easier for them. And for us then, typically in the first week, we call it a release. A project uh, consists or is typically a release, which um, starts with some preparation work. So again, Agile doesn't mean that you just jump into development straight ahead. So you do some minimal upfront design, and then you go into the development phase, or we call it the construction phase. And then we have a, um, a handover phase to bring something into operation, which we usually call the transition phase. And um, so this first release, typically between two to three months, um, there is no nothing yet in production, especially if it's a greenfield approach for a, for a new system. And their iteration-based working is absolutely fine. 
Um, once we are getting close to production of, of the first release, we are moving slightly away from the, not mainly the, the let's say, the iteration rhythm, but um, we are more flexible in terms of, of the planning. I don't expect team then to, let's say, um, commit to uh, what they want to achieve in the next two weeks in a very dogmatic way because we cannot predict how many bugs we bug reports we will get or some some other just operational things because typically as you mentioned it before the DevOps or data op thing the developers as well do the operation of the system at least in the beginning typically and that especially in this situation where um, you must be more flexible to, to react, um, the flow-based uh, process is just, it's just more convenient. But it as well needs certain discipline and uh, a maturity level, for example, of a product owner to constantly really writing their stories or keeping the backlog in shape. And uh, if you don't have these kind of rituals of strict, okay, now I have the deadline of the iteration workshop uh, after tomorrow. Then um, the, 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 the flow way thing can be dangerous uh, for, for new teams, especially. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it's about um, level maturity, right? As the team get more confident, they've started to build in some of that automation that makes them more efficient and, and, and stuff safer, then change the way you work to be more flow-based if it fits you. Um, and same thing as, as originally we were, we, we effectively had a, a development team and a BAU team or squads or whatever you want to call them. Um, because those were the, that's what tended to happen in the waterfall organizations. And so, you know, that whole, oh, there's a whole lot of unplanned features that came through, you know, how do the BAU team pick up and, and fix them or is go back to the development team, but the development team are in, you know, next iteration and they're now focusing on, on a new domain. Um, so this this data ops idea or DevOps idea of, you know, you build it, you release it, you, you, you maintain it, uh, I think is a much better model, right? But it brings a whole lot more uncertainty in the planning because, you know, there's always smaller bits of work they're going to turn up out of a, a typical iteration cycle and the stakeholders don't want to wait, you know, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks for that small change. Um, so on that, you know, uh, we've, I've experimented with customers on, on size of iteration, you know, uh, time period. I found that three weeks tends to be uh, the best way of starting, right? So a three-week iteration. Um, and and in day one, it's really unlikely that the, the team will be able to go from ideation of, hey, we need a new uh, information product to production in three weeks, right? They end up pipelining. So they, they break it down as, as we should and it'll take multiple iterations before it's done um, or done done. But you know they, they're striving to get that cycle time down into three weeks where possible. But everybody in the world always uses a two-week iteration, right? Agile's kind of with Scrum. Agile's kind of said two weeks iteration is now the de facto standard. I mean, I've I tried four. Um, what I found is that last week was waste for some reason, right? The last week we you know the team tended to waste that week for both reasons. One was was just a little bit too fast. We did one day for a, an experiment, one one day just for for a laugh, and that was funny. But you know, getting data and transforming it and visualizing it in a day with a team is pretty hard. But what do you find? Do you find that there's a typical iteration length you start off with? My let's say default is actually two weeks as well. But um, I have to distinguish here whether the factory is in place already. If the factory is in place, I tend to work in one way uh, in one week iterations so that's challenging but if you have really automated the main processes from for example getting data into a persistent stage and then from there for example into a core data warehouse model um, and if, if 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 you really can focus on the re actual requirements into on onto the modeling because that's what you can't automate um, but then it's it's absolutely feasible. The main challenge we face is the availability of the product owner. So typically we go to two weeks because the product owner in a typical organization of our customer base does not have, um, let's say, a full uh, a full position or the full uh, full FTE um, for the project. They are typically 
uh, available for two days a week. And that's why we then try to find out a good combination of what uh, is their availability and then look what what is the amount of development capacity which makes sense and then it's as well experimenting once again um, sometimes we start with a one week iteration and then we find okay it's too uh, sporty we, we we just better do it in in, in two weeks um, in in some other cases we as well had uh, the, the or took a decision as a team to go temporarily to a three-week cycle um, but it really depends and I, I really encourage you and as well our listeners to really experiment and do not just let's say follow some strict guideline in some way but really experiment and then take a decision okay what what did work best and what works best today is perhaps not what works best in three months so it really depends as well on the situation yeah and and also yeah when you're working in an iterative model or an iterative pattern um yeah they talk about it being in scrum terms we use the term sprint but you know for me it's a marathon because it's 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 continuous it's constant right there is no downtime on that team um so for me mixing it up with say a one day or one week iteration which is really just a a a research one or um you know a, a fedex style one where the team are focusing on something that's annoying them about the platform or the automation and they're just focusing on fixing it changing that um that cadence from their standard iteration cycle to something different again gives them a change right and that change is treated as a as a break um so when we go into greenfields right we, we've got to build the platform because as much as people talk about SaaS, you know cloud data warehouses, the reality at the moment is we have some great cloud analytical databases, right? But they're not a data warehouse. They don't have everything we need. And so, especially with the current modern data platform paradigm, we've got to go and grab a bunch of technologies and cobble them together to give us the capability we want. And and that takes time and effort and expertise. So again, in, in, in the original days, uh, I used to, you know, we used to look at iteration zeros, right? We used to look at... Um, a bunch of iterations that were just platform builds. Um, and what we found was, you know, we weren't particularly good at guessing. So we knew what some of the core features were, right? You typically need some data storage. You need some way of running code. You need to transform the data. You need to visualize it. That, that was a no-brainer. But, yeah, the details, the the tricky stuff in the middle was where the real gold was. And so moved more to, uh, you know, Building the the plane as you're flying, which is hard, right? But uh, what it means for for me is, you're only building something when you need it, um, and so and then you're testing it straight away, right, to to prove that it's given you the value. What downside? Uh, you know, it, it's hard to build something when you actually need it on the day, um, and uh, it makes it longer, right? It makes it. Inf- uh, it's perceived as longer to get, you know, uh, information product out the door because there's all that platform engineering that needs to happen. Um, what about you? Are you are you still seeing a lot of iteration zeros, or are you seeing organisations now kind of building it as they need it? Again, it's it's both. Um, we I would say I would go with the eighty twenty rule. So we invest, um, let's say, twenty time or 20% of the time of our uh, inception or iteration zero um, to, let's say, trying to build 80% of the needed platform functionality. Um, This we can do typically uh, with a combination of um, data warehouse automation tool sets. So, for example, the originally uh, New Zealand-based tool from from Wearscape. And they already bring you um, quite a bit of let's say, basic or foundational uh, functionality, which you just need everywhere or again and again, and as well provides you with the basic patterns for various platforms, et cetera. So that's that's the first thing. Now, what we did as as a company or service provider, we built on top certain patterns, which helps us to just, let's say, start very quickly with a customer. Um, for example, we have a pattern for creating such a persistent staging area because it's always the same thing. It's getting the data from a source system, let's say model-wise in a one-to-one fashion, maybe just a few data type mappings and adding um, historization 
just, just to having an archive or kind of an archive. We want to have um, physical delete detection. And this is always the same for, for, for whatever table you take. Now, given the fact or let's say if we stay in the realm of, of table-based data. And um, so if we already have this, let's say after half of a day of configuration, then of course you can already start uh, in the second half of this first day loading the first data. And of course there are some troubles connecting to the data source, but this is where you actually solve a concrete issue or problem. But just loading the data into this persistent stage, for example, that's it. And then we bring along um, a few patterns just to generate the whole um, data load for, for example, some dimensional or fact tables where we just need to build in the transformation rules to map the data from the, let's say, the source or the, the PSA system and map it to the fields you want to have in the core uh, in the core system. So you can already start modeling from day one because that's part of your requirements analysis. And this is where we uh, work, for example, with the, with the beam methodology of, of Lawrence Core. Um, to really collaboratively working together with business people and creating the data model and having now already the machinery in place that we just can generate the, let's say, the structural elements in the data warehouse in day one. Um, the, 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 the only piece which is missing is then really, again, the mapping between source and, and, and target. And this can be usually done in, in a few days. So. Having this play, uh, info, uh, or automation already in place, both from a, let's say, platform perspective, like the data warehouse tool provider, together with some predefined content, then you can actually uh, achieve this, this, this kind of speed. And of course, if you don't have this, then maybe you will invest one or two weeks to um, build this kind of basic patterns on demand or based on, on, on what your, your current need is. So. Yeah, and so yeah, as I said in the beginning, finding people that apply, you know, agile and data together is difficult for me. I mean, there's lots of people that do agile, um, and yeah, you know, one of the things I look for is uh, this idea of an agile data coach. And for me, it's somebody who brings patterns that may be reusable with them. So yeah, you've just you just named a bunch of patterns that are core to a data team uh, when they're working and. 100% on with you with Lawrence Core and the and the Beam um, approach. You know that for me is is a pattern that most data teams should adopt for understanding the core business processes and and the data that supports it. You know, it, it's a pattern that's worked for me for ten years and and I love it. It's fun as well, right? So uh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Anybody who hasn't used it, go use it. Um, so at risk of starting a religious war, um, the other pattern that. We, everybody tends to argue about is the modeling pattern. Um, you know, which, which uh, modeling paradigm do you tend to, to see customers using the most and, and which pattern do you tend to bring with you the most? Now, I'm a bit biased um, because we are uh, proposing dimensional modeling um, to our customers and therefore we, we do not have that many data vault customers because we are not that famous for, for having this um, or having the expertise in this modeling. Um, one reason for that is um, we are still thinking or we are still convinced that um, tackling the, uh, the, the, the BI challenge from a business perspective, which is tangible for, for people and which is basically understandable, um, is the most biggest benefit you, you, you can achieve so that you have an understandable data model that which is uh, understandable by business people. And in most cases we are working for, and again, this depends again on the, on the size of the company and the number of source systems, but the typical company we are serving um, where we are talking about maybe between five to ten source systems typically in, in one uh, let's say platform then a dimensional model is definitely uh, a, a good fit where you don't need the additional layer of a data vault for example um, and we as well um, try to uh, mitigate certain elements or certain risk uh, which come along with a dimensional model by always providing a persistent staging area as an archive where you can always reload uh, the core if it's absolutely necessary. We, of course, we, we try to omit that, but we have this kind of safety net. And now the question was, again, why was this 
possible to do so um, because uh, earlier on we it was just too much effort to build um, let's say these data flows into a persistent stage all the time for all the tables because you would have to create this manually for every table now as we have all the patterns in place it doesn't matter whether we have five table 50 tables or 500 table you just drag them in into the tool and say okay now generate and that's it and then you go and grab a coffee and wait until it, the generation process and the deployment process everything can be automated as long uh, as there is no business logic there and again there this agility as well brings us this flexibility that we can really work with a model which makes sense from a business perspective, even if it has some downsides from a technical perspective. Um, but in, in, let's say, the overall package uh, definitely works fine. Yeah, I mean, as you probably know, I'm more of a data vault uh, bigot than, uh, than a dimensional one. Um, but I take your point on uh, complexity, you know, that you, you when you use Data Vault, you'd never expose the Data Vault models to the, the end consumers. You always need a, a consume layer or presentation or whatever you want to call it. And that may be dimensional, maybe denormalized, because under the covers, the model is, is horrendous to look at, but incredibly easy to automate. Um, and I'm with you on PSA, on a, on a, what we call a history layer. Um, you know, that's a bit of a heretic in the Data Vault world, because in theory, you're meant to use the Vault modeling technique for a raw layer. Um, but but we don't. We we recommend um, using a persistent staging, uh, which is mirroring the source system, just historizing the tables. Um, for the same reason, you yeah, you, know, you can reload from scratch, which you could do with a raw vault. But um, I don't know. It, it just it's a pattern that's worked for me a lot, and so therefore. It's a pattern that you know we tend not to change. Just like your experience in dimensional works, and therefore you get the value out of it, and so use use the patterns that work for you. I think one one thing to add there is it's really um, it's really depending on the let's say the customer organization whether they have the people with the necessary skills to operate and understand and maintain a data vault. And this is where we see, especially for very large organizations, typically that works or they have enough as well internal stuff uh, to do so. But for a bit smaller companies and where BI is mainly business driven, um, you are just... Uh, getting to some limitations in terms of okay understanding a highly normalized uh, model like data wall these when, whenever these are uh, divergence in patterns there's always very strong opinions uh, I remember the old Inman and Kimball uh, arguments of, of many years ago um, so so on with you it's it's up to the organization and the teams we're coaching for them to pick the patterns uh, what we do is we encourage them where we've seen uh, value and ways of working from other teams. That's something we bring. Um, you know, I have had teams that actually don't model. Now, I I don't recommend it, right? My recommendation, uh, based on my experience, is always pick a modeling technique. There is value in that. But, you know, I have had teams that, uh, and the way they work, they don't model. They are more of a deploy and destroy, uh, and that's their paradigm, and it works for them. You know, but I don't see it often, um, and I and it has to be a conscious choice, right? The team have had to have experimented and know it works rather than just not modeling because it seems easier. Um, so when we talk about uh, those that factory and that automation, and you know, we've got the the framework or the pattern in for loading new data sources into into the persistent stage. So, you know, we point at it, we do the horrible, you know, roundabout of how do we connect? Don't have credentials, or you know, yada yada yada. Um, but we finally get access to to the the beast of a source system. We start grabbing the data over. We've identified the keys on the table. You know, we're we're all rocking persistent uh, stage or area is hydrated. Um, if we're moving into a new domain, what I find is uh, you know, the team come in and they're right, you know, they're kind of back at day one because um, unless there's a domain expert on the team, they don't understand the core business processes. They don't understand um, the source data. Uh, they don't understand the profile. They've got a whole lot of work right before they can start applying their normal patterns. And there's a real temptation to do that work early. Right to to kind of pipeline it where uh, another team does all that work and hands it over, um, and so there's this balance between uh, the 
the problem we have where a, a team walk into iteration planning on day one, let's say it's a Monday, and they have no background information and they're trying to plan their work, right? So they're, they're, they're rate of guessing, they're guessing with a whole lot of uncertainty. So that, that's kind of one end of the spectrum. And there's the other end of the spectrum where, you know, a BA goes away and, and does a whole lot of uh, analysis and insight, doesn't write up a requirements document, but all that knowledge is in one person, right? And And that Work's been done up front, but it's not been done by the team, so it's not as, as consumable. Um, and so for me, a kind of hybrid model, right? a balance uh, between those that work done up front um, and the team turning up with no insight is something that, that, that we focus on a lot, and it, it's a difficult problem. How do you deal with that? So you just so-called inception phase with some minimalistic upfront design comes into play because we often have the situation that we really start from scratch or on the green field and not even the customer knows exactly what they, they want and how things work. And usually um, it doesn't take that much time to just get some first insights and do some first experiments. So typically maybe two to three days of kind of a hackathon where you just look um, at, uh, first of all, the goals you want to achieve, then having some source system guys in place where you can uh, just have a direct look into this tables, etc., looking what's there, asking questions, doing some um, modeling canvas uh, work uh, together. So basically it doesn't take that much until you get a first idea um, how how things works and how things relate to each other. And I think one is, uh, important thing here is establishing a common language. So modeling for me is not only having a data model in the end, but modeling is uh, certainly defining this kind of common vocabulary so that everybody understands what a customer is, what is a product, what is a service, whatever entity you have in your in your organization or, or finally then in the data model, I think you can solve a lot of things within only two to three days. Um, and I think it's worth taking this effort to um, let's say get a new team accustomed to each other, but as well to the to the domain and the topic they should work in, and then establish uh, the plan after having this first few uh, workshops and then start with maybe if it's a really let's say sophisticated new business domain uh, why not doing kind of a proof of concept or a little, little pilot where you don't need even um, to to build the full the fully fledged data warehouse what we often do is we, we just uh, build the, the persistent stage with a few tables because again automation let's assume is already there and then we just uh, do either a view layer or go directly in a tool like, for example, Power BI, and then do just some virtual data modeling where we, we just have a, um, a look, how could the skeleton look like, and then already show some first data. It's not about having a report which is production ready, but that you can show a first concrete result even after the first three to four days. And this is typically as well where you can then identify certain misunderstandings in terms of, oh, I didn't mean it like this from a customer perspective or a business perspective. And so that that's a, let's say, I think a good step in between that you do this kind of virtual data model where you just have a first idea how this could look like. And once you have figured out the, the, the main issues during this experiment, then you can tackle this um, these issues already in your backlog, for example, and say, okay, here we see we need to, we, we, for example, we have certain data quality issues. So you already know, okay, here we need to plan a little bit more time uh, during the sprint or an upcoming sprint to address them, things like this. Yeah, exactly the same technique that I, that Pat and I recommend. So um, the idea of a research spike, uh, the idea of time boxing it, and and again, really important to time box it because as data people, we love to go in the detail. So you know, when the team find out they'll need to uh, match customer records from multiple systems, um, that's enough, right? That's enough statement to know there's some complexity. But they always want to deep dive into how's the matching algorithm going to work. Um, I'm a great fan of canvases. I find that canvases are a good way of getting enough information quickly that the team can look at it and nod together. They, they get understanding, but they're not going to write a whole lot of detail because at this time it has no value or minimal value. 
Um, and definitely agree that the best way of getting feedback is put something in front of the customer. So quick prototypes in front, but being very clear that they can never go to production. They don't meet our definition of done. Right. So as professionals, we will not push it to production because we have standards we hold ourselves to and, and hacking a dashboard and a prototype and making it live for a thousand users is not what we do as professionals. So uh, online there. Um, so two things I want to cover off just before we, we end is uh, a quick conversation on scaling, which is never a quick conversation because that's uh, one of the hardest problems. Um, and a second conversation around the state of the BI and data tooling market for agile ways of working. So let's go on the scaling one. Um, so what I find is working with a small team is is not easy, but it's, it's easier, right? We they're dedicated, they're focused, uh, they're iterating their ways of working, they're self-contained, self-organizing, you know, the lines of communication are small enough. They, they tend to just rock it, right? And, and, and it's amazing to watch. As soon as we scale to, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 people, we now have to break things up. We know that a team of 40 working on the same thing is not efficient. So we need to scale them, right? And we may scale them on a domain, uh, heavens forbid we scale them on the part of the process because you know, not my favorite pattern. Um, we may do it uh, where we scale them that just pick up the next thing off the backlog, right? But now we have, uh, we want to reuse patterns. We want to set standards across them and, and have a light federated governance model, um, those kind of things. So, so what's your view? I mean, have you got any magic tips for when you want to scale from a team of five to a team of 30? Yeah, it's not it's not magic. But the first thing I'd do is I typically split uh, those who build the factory and those who use the factory, because um, as well from a skill a skilling perspective, um, those who build the factory typically need to have much more insights in terms of what standards they want to see implemented. They need to maybe think a bit more in a more abstract way, because they need always to find a generic kind of solution for which then can be turned back again into concrete uh, solutions. So that's the first thing. And depending on how big your factory should become, you can put in quite a lot of people into the factory, which is then much more similar to working on a software engineering project, even though it's still in, a, in, in the data world, etc. And then uh, again, the factory is a, is a highly important aspect, I think, in order to then have multiple teams working on, for example, different domains, but always using the same the same patterns, and this you can't achieve without having, let's say, the the, the, the kind of factory, um, uh, let's say, powered by automation. Because the automation, again, as I told before, is always based on standardization. Because otherwise, you can't automate. And I think that's the again the foundation. Um, once you have this 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 machinery in place, it's much easier then to have multiple teams on top. Uh, working in always the same way because they don't have to care about naming conventions. They don't have to care about how certain code is implemented. They can purely focus on the business requirements, the modeling, and certain, let's say, transformation logic uh, uh, to map the, the source data to the target model. So that's, let's say, my main, let's say, direction I would, would use uh, in order to, to scale up uh, the teams. Um, the other angle we, we, we could think of is when we talked about these end-to-end increments, it's always a question, what does end-to-end mean? And typically, or there certain authors in the literature, they, they always say, okay, you always have to go from the source system up to the fully-fledged dashboard, etc., and only this is Agile BI. And then, of course, there are other authors which say, okay, no, everything... Um, needs to be splitted. So I mean, nearly not every layer in the data warehouse, but perhaps the uh, persistent stage is one layer and this is a user story and then you do a user story for your core layer, etc. And we think that it's somewhere in between. We typically go with, let's say, the, the, until, the, uh, until the core warehouse where we say the core warehouse um, is independent of the main business context. Of course, there, there is some business logic, for example, when it comes to data integration of various source systems, but usually um, on the level of a data mart and then the final reporting, this is typically driven by a specific use case. And this is as well where we could split teams to say, okay, 
one team is responsible for really building the data foundation and do the stuff which is rather generic in the context of, of the organization. And then you have individual either project or use case driven teams, which are then working on, on, on specific, really some soft business rules and uh, the implementation of, uh, the, let's say, the data modern reporting layer. And there you can as well scale based on this, this separation of, of resources. Yeah, so I agree with you. Um, scaling's hard. You know, pick a pattern, experiment with it, uh, adapt to where it doesn't work. Um, a lot of the time, the teams I've worked with, we have moved to what I call platform as a product, right? So we have a squad or a team that are focused on the platform. We tend to introduce the idea of a data platform manager. Uh, whose role it is is to engage with the other teams or squads to understand what's coming. Um, and so, you know, they can serve them as their customer. Um, one downside I found with that is uh, some of the fun stuff, some of the platform engineering, some of that hardcore automation then gets taken out of the squads and given to another team that tend to do all the cool stuff. And, um, you know, the squads end up kind of being more factory of just move the data and visit. So um, one of the teams I worked with, they experimented with uh, the squad that the squads doing the initial cut of a piece of automation as part of their information product delivery. So so they solved their own problem with some help from the, the platform squad. So we might have um, parachuted a platform squad member into that, that team for a while, just help them. And then once it had some value, then it got moved to the platform squad to automate it and make it available as a product to the other teams. Um, so they could use that. And, and as you said, Professional laziism. Um, I think Shop, uh, Spotify talked about uh, use different terms, but the same model, which was when something's repeatable and available and automated, a team will typically pick it up and use it because it's easy for them. So you don't need to force them; you just need to encourage them. Um, so yeah, and and then yeah, you can do it via domain, you can do it via stage of the development cycle. But the key thing is experiment and adapt. So if it's not working for you, uh, change change the model. So yeah, um, but scaling is hard. Um, so last one, state of the the data, the tooling market to support agile ways of working. What, what's your view on it at the moment? Definitely better than 10 years ago. <laughs> so um, when we started 10 years ago, I read about things like data warehouse automation and definitely there were some vendors back then, but it was still on a rather rudimentary basis, I would say. And nowadays we have quite a, a vivid market of, of, of tool vendors uh, in, in, in the area of automation. Um, what I prefer having their uh, tools and of course, again, uh, Wellscape, where, where you have still a certain flexibility, where you can, let's say, influence what code is generated. And uh, even though out-of-the-box stuff is great uh, to start very quickly, um, you will always end up with certain, uh, let's say, customer or organization-specific things which you need to adapt. And this is something where I would look for that you always, uh, that you don't lose the flexibility uh, to control what's actually generated, to be not that much dependent on, on a specific vendor. Second thing I would like to mention are um, data or data warehouse specific testing tools, which is something which isn't on the market that long, I would say, or at least there I see as well uh, 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 interesting development so that you can, first of all, automate test cases or running the test cases. And what, what's as well a very interesting combination is when you manage to combine the data warehouse automation uh, tool with the test automation tool so that you can, let's say, that the test automation can, for example, use the metadata of a uh, tool like Wearscape to derive what tables to be tested, having the full lineage, for example, to know, okay, if this is my PSA table, the source table in the source system is this and this table, for example. And I think this makes it very powerful uh, in terms of uh, as well making sure that the data quality is there and that you don't have regression issues. And the third thing I would like to mention is that agility or this, this tooling stuff is not only there uh, in, um, in the, in the back end, in the data back end, it's as well there in the front end. Because 
The same is true in terms of standardization. So maybe you have heard of the IBCS, the International Business Communication Standards. And uh, using such, we call it a notation standard where you define or where it's somehow predefined how a chart should look like, how tables should look like. Um, then there are as well tool providers, typically add-ins for existing tools like Power BI, so that you can apply this standard automatically or pretty much out of the box. And this again speeds up the whole process from requirements engineering because you don't need to rediscuss, oh, would I like to have now this chart in blue, yellow, orange, or whatever color? It's just predefined to a certain degree. And as well, the development is very quick um, because let's say uh, when I used to invest uh, multiple days, if not weeks, to create a fancy chart, you get a much more out of the box, again, based on the standard. And I think uh, that's why I said it's much better than 10 years ago um, throughout through the whole stack from really getting the data in, testing the data. We have a lot more of automation aspects available nowadays. And of course, as well, the, the whole deployment uh, pipelines, DevOps tools. So I think we, we did, a good, did good progress, but we are still behind the software industry or software engineering uh, world. Um, they are still... Uh, let's say 10 years before us. Yeah, definitely. And especially when we talk about testing, right? You know, testing, automated testing of data is, we are so woeful. It's getting better, but um, I, I think we see waves and patterns in the technology space. And, you know, like the first tool you use, Crystal Reporting got bought out and consumed into a big beast and then completely lost. I think we're going to see a wave now of all the uh, all the little niche tools that add value to our lives getting merged into big behemoths until the next wave goes. Um, so just to close out, uh, I started my journey reading a couple of books. Uh, I read some of the Agile data or BI books from Ralph Hughes and Ken Collier. Um, and, 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 you know, they they really illuminated uh, my journey for me, and then you know there were a bunch of other books that came out. You know Lawrence's book around Beam, uh, Hans's book around Data Vault. Uh, you know that were more specialised, right? They were dealing with one small part, and yes, they used the word agile, but they weren't really talking about the end to end process and how it fitted. They were just talking about some really good patterns that you could use in there. And then we kind of had a gap, right? I couldn't. There's not a lot came out. And then we got a bunch of what I would call uh, whitewash books, right? We got a bunch of books that had the word agile in it and data, but really they were technology books that talked step by step how to implement, you know, uh, SQL Server analysis services or you know a bunch of tools and technologies. And look, they were valuable if you hadn't done your platform build before, but they were all focused on technology, not ways of working. So you're you're writing a book, right? It's uh, I know books take a while to write, but um, and and obviously based on what we're talking today, I'm, I'm assuming your book is going to be about the end to end process, about that way of working and patterns you can leverage. So is that true? And when when can I start reading it? Uh, you can already start reading it now because um, we are, of course, writing the book in an agile way. So um, we are doing iterations chapter by chapter um, and we are publishing, uh, let's say, better releases of the book. So uh, maybe we can post uh, the link on the show notes. Um, but you can uh, easily register there and become a better reader. So currently we have the first six chapters already available. And then you can have, as well give feedback if you want, uh, what uh, you would like to see in, in addition or where something didn't make sense for you, for example. So um, that's the current process. So we plan to have uh, a first draft ready uh, this spring somewhere, and then hopefully the book can be published somewhere in 2022 uh, uh, already. Now, in terms of um, how do we want to be different to already existing books is basically, first of all, we are addressing non-IT people in that book. Um, so, because our main stakeholders we are currently working with are typically controllers, for example, or marketing analysts, etc. So, really business people. And there we see that there is, they didn't want or they don't want to read uh, a too much of a technical book. They are more interested in the overall process, for example. And that's why we 
uh, are currently, or the book is designed as a city guide. So um, we um, depicted the city called Agile BI City. And we are taking our readers onto a sightseeing tour through this city where we show them around various um, districts. And we start, for example, with a district called Inception Beach. And Inception Beach, we learn how you do this minimal upfront design. Then we go uh, further to Vision Hills. So this is more about, okay, what... Um, what role does a BI strategy play, for example, to enable um, agility in, in, in BI? Then we go to West Side Requirements, for example, where it's all about gathering requirements. Then we go to, I guess, we have um, contracting thousands. So how about agile contracting, downtown patterns? Um, then we go um, to technology land uh, or a district called technology land, I think. So we are really walking the reader through this, the various steps the various, I would say, building blocks you typically need. And of course, you do not have to um, visit or, let's say, then adapt this into your whole, uh, in your own company to have all the different areas. But I think it gives you a good overview. What are the elements you need to think of and then adapt accordingly to your own situation? That's cool. I mean, I love the way that it's telling, giving the information by telling a story in a different way. I mean, uh, one of my one of the books I did enjoy that came out around you know agile, but not around data, was the Phoenix Project, and I enjoyed it because it told a good story, and then as part of telling that good story, you learn some things. So, uh, yeah, that idea of a city guide that's that's cool. That's uh, something I haven't seen before, so I look forward to uh, to reading it this year. Um, so before we close out, anything else top of mind for you about Agile and BI and data that you want to talk about? So I think what for me, again and again, the most important part, show the value as early as possible. Um, even we, even though we talked about building a factory, etc., don't invest too much into the factory before showing some concrete value, maybe just having um, a, a simple report or a quick win where you can uh, show the value to your stakeholders. I think that's the most important part. And once, you, once they know that there is value in their data, um, then you can start focusing on building the, the necessary foundation to have a really sustainable solution, etc. But don't forget about the, the value and to show as well and, and make this value visible um, to your stakeholders. Yeah, no, I can't agree more. So, uh, look, thanks for your time. It's been an awesome talk. We've covered a, a lot of bullet points, uh, but they were all things that people should think about when they're doing you know, Agile BI or Agile data with their teams. So uh, thank you for your time again, and we'll catch you later. Yeah, thanks for having me. Bye. Data Magicians was another Agile data podcast. If you'd like to learn more on applying an agile way of working to your data and analytics, head over to agiledata.io.